going back to that problem solving, how are we going to solve the problem? How can I support every other member of my team? Where can I improve myself in being able to contribute to that team? And also helping my teammates be able to contribute to the problem and definitely focusing more on the holistic approach. You have to have a vision and ability to get things done. I'm talking about a vision for how am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to move my career forward? How am I going to move my team forward? How am I going to be able to help the organization as a whole? What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. today is a leader in the data science space with over three decades of experience serving in various roles within business analytics and artificial intelligence. He's a data scientist who specializes in predictive analytics, machine learning, and training teams. Currently, he's a chief data scientist of the Strategic Artificial Intelligence Lab at Leg Mason based in Baltimore, Maryland, where he's aiming to create cutting-edge artificial intelligence that can be made accessible to all and specializes in designing and developing new machine learning departments for mid to large size or organizations. Before that, he served as vice president of analytics at Morgan Stanley, where he focused on fraud detection and prevention for the firm's $50 trillion per year wire transfer business. He's also served as the lead artificial intelligence consultant for Analytics Edge LLC, where he was involved in a wide variety of data science projects for 25 clients, creating nearly 100 predictive models for industries ranging from banking, cellular, healthcare, hospitality, and various nonprofits. He serves on the World Board of Directors for ICOM Digital Analytics, as well as the Chief Data Officer on the Board of Directors for the DC region at Gartner. He's got some amazing experience training teams in data science and has authored Harvard Innovation Lab's ExpertFi Artificial Intelligence course. He's also been invited as a guest trainer for 3M Asia and as a guest lecturer at the University of Maryland and John Hopkins University. So please help me welcoming our guest today, a man whose mission it is to make data science accessible for mortals, T. Scott Clendaniel. Scott, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today, man. I really, really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Hey, you know, I just heard that description. It sounds like this guy can't hold a job. What's up with that? <laughs> well, he sounds like a very, very talented data scientist. Yeah, we'll go with that. I like that answer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. Some tremendous, tremendous experience. So let's, let's uh, talk about a little bit about how you uh, first heard of data science, how you got into the field, what drew you to the field, and some of the challenges you faced uh, while you were trying to break into and create your own lane in data science. Sure. Yeah, um, I would love to be able to tell you that this was a carefully crafted strategic plan across 34 years. Unfortunately, I would also be completely lying because that's not what happened. 
I was actually, uh, when I started at the University of Baltimore, I was majoring in strategic planning of all things. And I had met with the co-op department, which is sort of like internships. And they had said, hey, I've got this wonderful opportunity for you to go work with Citicorp. Are you interested? I said, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Please set that up for me. So I go in and I'm sweating bullets. 21 years old. And I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do this or not, but I'm going to really try. So I go into the interview and get all the way to the final question. And the gentleman asked me, gee, your major seems to be strategic planning. Why would you be interested in focusing on marketing analytics? Well, my jaw almost hit the table because the one thing that the placement officer had not told me was that the job was actually for marketing analytics. So I was like, well, it's so important to be able to track your return on investment and ability to do things in the marketplace and set up metrics. And so that's why I was interested. And somehow that worked. So I started out doing analytics from that point on. That's one hell of a way to think on your feet and uh, <laughs> get, get, get an answer out. That's awesome, man. Uh, so how much more hyped has AI become since you first broke into the field? Well, uh, way too much, I would actually say. When I first started out, people talked about analytics and eventually they talked about business intelligence, but they used to refer to this uh, field by some wacky names. For most of the time I was in it, it was data mining, which actually started out as a pejorative. The origin of that term was actually people who were fishing in databases for relationships that they could sell to clients that weren't really supported by the data. And somehow that nickname attached to the entire field. So for the first 15 or 20 years that I did this, it was data mining or the other one, which always makes me chuckle, KDD, which was knowledge discovery in databases. Um, and one of my favorite sites out there is still KD Nuggets, um, which is sort of like the Craigslist of analytics. Um, not big on graphic design, but absolutely excellent material. But when I started out doing data mining or KDD or whatever you wanted to call it, you had to beg clients to tell you anything or, or to listen to you. And the response was always something along the lines of, oh, that's too geeky for me. Or, oh, I don't want all those statisticians running around telling me how to do my job. Yeah, maybe there's something in it. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. And now the pendulum has swung completely the other way. Yes, you can apply deep learning to attaching postage stamps or whatever bizarre application people come up with from this and that. And I'm really concerned that we're going to enter an AI winter, which would be the third one we've experienced, because I think it has been so overhyped that there's no way that the field can possibly live up to the expectations. So um, the short answer is way too much, way too overhyped. And yes, I'm really worried. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, I had no idea that data mining was kind of used as a pejorative term like that. Uh, that's really, really yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't find that out until I had started telling people I was doing that. And occasionally I got a raised eyebrow and I was like, hmm, what's up with that? But uh, that's where it came from. And that's, that's interesting that it went from geeky to extremely sexy in, in that short, you know, in, in that amount of time. Um, my my wife is still not convinced in my case about the sexy part, but I'm working on it. <laughs> I, I, I think you yourself just bring sexy back to data science. Oh, there. Oh, <laughs> stop. You do go on. So.
There you go. Uh, so, so you mentioned AI winter that we might be entering into our third one. Um, I think a lot of my audience is pretty new to data science sure. uh, and, and the field. Do you mind briefly just taking us through, uh, first of all, what the concept of an AI winter is and maybe just touch briefly on the, the last one that we experienced? Absolutely. Um, this is also a great way to start a bar fight among AI geeks is to start arguing when AI winters happened and didn't happen. But let me give you the, at least my interpretation interpretation of it. An AI winter is a period of time where the field of artificial intelligence um, sort of goes fallow, where not a whole lot of development goes on and people start to lose faith in the field. The original concept for most of what we call artificial intelligence now was developed back in the 60s based on the theory of a neural network reflecting the basic biological structure of synapses in the brain, and that if we could imitate mathematically what happens in a human brain, we could therefore come closer to achieving more human intelligence in terms of problem solving. But neural networks did not catch on very quickly, and there was a long period of time in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s where neural networks were sort of out of fashion, and it was very difficult to get people to adapt any type of predictive analytics technology. And then in the 80s, it sort of came roaring back. And there was a period of time in the late 80s where people were like, oh, neural networks are the solution to everything. But at that period in time, the theory was is all you needed was three hidden layers in a neural network. So you should be able to solve any problem because one layer was a point, two layers was a line, three layers was a shape. So if you got to a shape, you could basically bound any group of points in a hyperplane and be able to say, hey, I got it. And then it took off again. But neural networks were not nearly as successful as people thought they would be. So we went all the way through the 90s and the early 2000s. And what really caused things to come rearing back after that second AI winter, so to speak, was the discovery of deep learning, specifically for problems like computer vision. So if I need to identify the kittens in the YouTube videos, it's very hard to do that with traditional statistics. And adding additional layers to a neural network didn't help. But when you got to computer vision in several research papers that came out from Google, especially around 2010, it was, hey, um, now we've been able to find out how to add additional layers to a neural network and make them deeper, hence deep learning, which is basically just very sophisticated neural networks with lots of hidden layers. We can get all sorts of performance that we've never had before. And so AI took off again. The problem is that people seem to have missed the fact that even Google, who was a huge proponent of AI solving everything about 10 years ago, has come out and said, well, yeah, they're really helpful for a lot of problems, but it's certainly not the solution to everything. And we're going to take a step back and not try and solve everything with neural networks or deep learning. And that seemed to go right over the heads of all the AI journalists. And that wasn't covered very much. So they were big on creating the hype cycle on the way up. But when the cycle goes back down the other side, not so much. So I'm kind of concerned that we have now oversold what AI can do. So where do you see the field of you know, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence headed in, let's say, the next two to five years? There are definitely applications where AI will continue to take off. But I think that the best opportunities in the next two to five years have less to do with autonomous vehicles and have more to do with solving more traditional problems. So, for example, um, big leaps have been gained in 
being able to diagnose disease, um, especially in terms of automating some of the processes that used to be done in radiology. So if you're going to make a career choice and you haven't started schooling, radiology is not the first choice I would recommend because I think AI is going to take over a lot of those slots. But more importantly, more traditional problems can be solved, and they're not nearly as sexy, but they have a lot bigger payoff. So which of my customers is going to open my email? Which of my customers is going to buy which product? Product recommender systems, from what you've seen from, you know, Amazon's been doing that forever, improving those types of areas. I think that the biggest applications are actually going to be on the cost saving side and eliminating waste and solving lots of classic classification problems. Which of my customers is going to buy? Which of my customers is going to attrite? Which of my customers might uh, be a credit risk? Those type things are much lower hanging fruit but they don't attract nearly the attention. Uh, but that's where I see the next three to five years having the biggest opportunity. And I think the autonomous vehicles might be a little bit further down the road, but I don't know. So, so in this vision of the future, what do you think is going to separate the great data scientists from just the you know, good ones? I think what's going to separate the great data scientists from the good ones is taking a small step back from the belief that everything can be solved just by throwing a, another Python library at it, by adding package after package after package to problem solving. I think that we need to go back to say, let's look at this from the standpoint of what does the organization really need? What is the problem we're trying to solve? How are we going to define criteria for success? How are we going to say when good enough is good enough, as opposed to ultimately reaching for, you know, some unreachable state of perfection and moving more towards what happened with software development in more of an agile based approach and iterating through, I think great data scientists are going to become much more focused on how are we going to solve this problem? What are our criteria for success? What stages can we do this in? And let's put on our problem solving hats and stop trying to make code by itself solve everything. Very much am in line with that myself. Uh, oh, great. So, so let's talk about kind of you know, leadership uh, in data science. So okay. what does it mean for you to be a good leader in data science and how can an individual contributor embody the characteristics of a good leader without necessarily having the title? I think to be a good leader, you have to first learn how to be a good team member. You need to be willing to focus on the greater good, for lack of a better phrase, in terms of Going back to that problem solving, how are we going to solve the problem? How can I support every other member of my team? Where can I improve myself in being able to contribute to that team? And also helping my teammates be able to contribute to the problem and definitely focusing more on the holistic approach, but also sort of forever learning approach to life. I think those are very important. You have to have a vision and ability to get things done. And I'm not talking about a vision for world peace, although that would be fantastic. I'm talking about a vision for how am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to move my career forward? How am I going to move my team forward? How am I going to be able to help the organization as a whole? As we've already discussed, I am older than dirt. But when I first started in this field, there were several folks who had said to me, in business, you should always be prepared to earn the organization who has hired you 10 times the amount of your salary back to the organization. Now, maybe that was overkill. Fair enough. But not a whole lot of folks seem to be really concerned about how are they going to provide, let's say, a twofold return of their salary back to the organization. If you start thinking about problem solving in that way, 
it does wonders to focus the mind, as they say, on the type of skills that I need to develop to be able to provide leadership to the organization. So for, for someone who's, let's say, the first data scientist in an organization, and, and they're kind of responsible for building up the data science practice, what are some of the challenges that you would see them facing? Uh, and how do you think that they could overcome those challenges? There's been way too much of that, as a matter of fact. I can't tell you how many consulting assignments I have started off where someone wants the sun, the moon, and the stars. And within a week, uh, I come back to them and said, gee, do you guys know that you already have a dashboard or that solves this problem and you've had it for years, but no one else is looking at it. You need to be really careful if you're the first data scientist in an organization to make sure that you focus on a crawl, walk, run approach. The way to be successful is one, make sure that whatever the first project you work on is going to be a success or as successful as you can make it. Because if an organization is very new to data science, if the first project blows up, the conclusion tends not to be oh, gee, there was a mistake with the first project. The conclusion instead tends to be, I told you guys that this data science stuff was a bunch of hooey and isn't worthwhile and that we shouldn't have hired this person and we shouldn't have a department. And it is extremely difficult to overcome that if you allow that to happen. So all of your efforts should be on making sure that you set expectations that you can reach and that you start off by saying, what are things that I can solve? What are the biggest pain points in my organization? How do they define that? How do they measure that? What can I do to solve one of those? Not by creating the most complex model, but what's the simplest, most understandable? Can I solve this with a three-letter decision tree? If you can, get that into place first before you start fooling with stuff that is going to be almost impossible for naysayers in the organization to understand. Understand what you're saying correctly in order to set yourself up as, um, you know, to, in order to set yourself up to be successful in your career from the get go, you should focus on having a lifelong learner's attitude coupled with a bias towards action in order to yes. solve problems, not in the most fancy way possible, but in the most parsimonious, easy to understand manner so that you could sell your solutions to whoever your, your audience is. Yes, simplicity is ridiculously underrated and not simplicity for simplicity's sake, but complex systems tend to fail. Complex systems are hard to explain. People do not support what they don't understand. Instead, they fear what they don't understand. Whatever we do in data science, it's actually working with people. You need to start there. Who are the people that I'm trying to help? What are the problems and how do they define those? How can I help people using the technologies I have as opposed to, let me take the technologies I have and force them on the people around me. The, the second approach does not work. What's up artists? Be sure to join the free open mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. What would you say the, the hero's journey looks like for a data scientist or anyone in a data-related role that's maybe going from an individual contributor level to a chief executive level, maybe a chief data scientist, chief analytics officer, you know, one of those type of roles? Again, I'm going to go back to the people skills. I know that we have all been smothered with um, articles, presentations, and training on storytelling, but people seem to misunderstand what that storytelling aspect is. It's not going out 
and pretending you're Steven Spielberg and I'm going to create a great movie about it. It's identifying what is your role, what is the problem you're facing, how do you solve it, and what the result's going to be. It's taking the situation out of the world of let's explain lots of formulas and throw lots of complicated graphics on the screen and saying, you know, from a very simple point of view, what are we trying to fix? And I recommend that we use this model using this data on this time frame. And here are the goals that I'm going to understand. You have to start from the perspective of the audience you're trying to serve. You don't start from the technology and figure out where to apply it. You figure out what the problem is and then figure out which technology will help solve that problem. I like that a lot. And especially like that part about storytelling. What are some Well, there things- seems to be this feeling among data scientists that storytelling is cheesy or that storytelling yes. is beneath them. Exactly. Or, yeah. or my brilliance should overcome the need to tell a story. I am an expert. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, no yeah. one wants to listen to you if you come in with that attitude. I think that's a very, very underrated skill is the storytelling aspect. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of storytelling, what somebody could do to develop their storytelling skills? Um, and maybe, you know, do you have like a framework for storytelling that you use? A- absolutely. Um, essentially, it is who is your hero and your hero is always your audience. What is the challenge that they are facing? What do they need to overcome? What tool or technology are they going to use to overcome? How is that going to happen? And what is the celebration or result of overcoming that problem going to be at the end? That's a very basic outline, but it does wonders to connect with your audience. Um, A lot of people don't go into data science because they just can't get enough of relationships with other people. I hate to say that, but, but it's true. But you need to be able to figure out if you want to get the goodies, the dessert in life, you need to figure out how to eat the spinach. And unfortunately, I actually like spinach, but anyhow, um, people need to start with that in mind. And understanding how to help people is where you start. And the storytelling approach to make it in terms of pieces that people can understand. Why do people, you know, subscribe to Netflix? And why do so many people go to the movies when they're not shut down during pandemics, at least, why do people resonate with that, especially when they're completely fictitious stories? Well, because the human mind on a social basis is geared to understand stories and to resonate. So storytelling eliminates the noise of technology and complexity and pulls out the signal of what is important and how it's going to solve the problem. So if you view storytelling from the perspective, the same way you would look at data, I need to separate signal from the noise, present the signal and eliminate the noise. Storytelling is the way to communicate the signal and helps block the noise of technology overwhelm. Does the way you tell a story, does that differ based on, let's say, if you're talking to your manager versus maybe talking to a room full of executives? And, and do you have any tips for data Absolutely. scientists? Absolutely. But, but go back to the example we just talked. It was a great question. What are the different components? Your audience is the hero. You are not the hero in the story. The audience is the hero. The audience has the journey. The audience has the problem. How are you going to help the audience be successful? In a lot of cases, people just don't care what algorithm you use. I hate to break this to folks. Now, there are certain organizations where you've got rooms full of people who love to discuss the algorithms. Okay, great, fantastic. But you've got to know who your audience is. 
And to use the example that you laid out before, it being the first person in the organization, how are you going to make the organization the hero? How are you going to help them overcome the challenge? So what other soft skills would you say that uh, candidates are, are missing that are really going to separate them from the competition? We've talked a little bit about, you know, communication skills and storytelling. Um, are there any other skills that, that, you know, you think data scientists nowadays are lacking that they should really uh, ramp up on? Yeah, you know, everyone wants to say that the skill set that they have is the most important because it helps their egos, and I, I guess I'm no different. But the advantage that I had of coming into the field, and a lot of disadvantages as well, the advantage I had was having studied strategic planning and having an MBA, the degree itself, I don't recommend a whole bunch of people go out and study business or get MBAs. That isn't the point. For a long time, I couldn't figure out why I had taken that degree and ended up in the field that I'm in. And I was like, gosh, I just wasted so much time. I learned about this, I learned about that, and all this stuff with advanced accounting, and my goodness. What I didn't realize was, is I was building problem-solving skills. And that's what seems to be missing. Understanding the problem, defining the problem, defining the criteria for success, and laying out a plan to get there. That's what you really need to do. Those are the soft skills you need to have. Keep working with whoever your audience or your client is to make sure that they're comfortable with the definition of the problem because many times they aren't. And if you're coming into an organization or if you're applying for a job at an organization, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I read this great article about LSTM and we need to incorporate that and, you know, our next plan because I think it's really cool technology and my cousin Fred was at MIT and they talked about this a lot. So we need to have that in my organization and they have no idea how to apply it, run for the hills. Because what's going to happen is if you do get the job and if they do hire you, they're going to turn on you when they figure out that LSTM has nothing to do with the problem they're trying to solve. They're not going to blame themselves. They're going to blame the new data scientists they just hired. Beware of that before you start. So what are some questions we could ask ourselves at the outset, you know, when we're starting a project, maybe questions we can ask ourselves and questions we can ask our stakeholders that can really help us clarify exactly what the problem is. And then, Oh, I got a great of, one for you. Yeah, definitely. Let me tell you what I used to do, which was a bad idea. And then let me give you a much better idea. What I used to do is to ask people at the end of the year, what do you think would get you a great bonus? What do you think would get, you a promotion? What do you think would get you a big salary increase? And people hemmed and hawed and felt really uncomfortable and they didn't really want to share that information so that didn't go so well. So instead, the question I started asking was first, what do you think would get your boss a giant promotion or a big bonus or a big salary increase? Or senior management at the very top of this organization what And, oh, my goodness, do the stories start to spell. Oh, you wouldn't believe this person or that person is really into this or into that. And all they talk about is blah, 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 blah. Or ask them, what is the biggest pain point that your manager or your manager's manager seems to talk about all along? And they will tell you more than you want to hear. But those are the problems you should be looking at. Those are the problems you should be trying to solve. Because wherever the pain is, is where the opportunity is. You need to seek out the pain and fix the pain. Not, oh, it could be this or it could be that or you know, rainbows and unicorns. 
find the pain, diagnose the pain, fix the pain. Kind of ties into you know, your, your framework for storytelling because the hero in your story is not you. It's your audience. It's your Absolutely. So you shouldn't try to pick up projects that you think are interesting because they're things that you want to do. You should t- take on projects that are going to, like you said, solve a pain point for the organization so that you could get that 10x return on your salary that they're investing in you. There is a hidden data science message in the movie Doctor Strange of all places. So if oh. you go into the movie and, you know, all the trippy graphics and all that kind of stuff, that, that's all well and good. But actually, if you look at the discussion between the Ancient One and Strange, the Ancient One turns to him and says, you still haven't figured out the most basic lesson in all I've tried to teach you. And he's like, well, what is that? It's not about you. And that really resonated with me because it isn't, and it isn't about any of us. It is about the team that we're trying to support, the organization we're trying to support, where we're trying to get promoted, where we're trying to get our salary increases, where we're trying to do whatever. That is what it is about. The part for the you in any situation is how can I contribute to solving that problem? What can I do to improve myself to become better at solving those kinds of problems? What can I learn that would help prepare me for the next time a similar problem comes up? Speaking of, you know, what do you learn or, or how to, to learn what, what we should learn next? I, I feel like there's a lot of boot camps that cover a lot of the technical aspects of data science. Yes, there are. Uh, but <laughs> there's, there's not enough, I think, that help develop the business acumen or product sense for a data scientist. Um, how do you think a data scientist could develop and cultivate, you know, a, a business acumen or a product sense for themselves? Good question. Any type of management type of course in terms of helping solve problems is great. I think that actually there are lots of lessons available within computer science curriculums. It's just that people want to jump past that. Um, a great exercise is actually to go through the books that have been published, and there's a whole slew of them now, on how to pass the data science exams to get into Google or Facebook or wherever. And where I think it's really helpful in studying those books is they lay out a specific problem, and they're looking for you to be able to solve it. So it, it's not the answer so much as it is, what is the process that you went through to get to an answer? What did you think about? What did you consider? How did you lay out some options? So even within your own curriculum, I think there's a lot to be learned. But people keep focusing on the syntax as opposed to what's the problem? How do I define it? And what is the thought process I use to get to that? Design thinking, I think is fantastic. Can't recommend it highly enough. Um, anything that focuses on general problem solving, that's what you want to do. Um, and, and if you're truly geeky like myself, think of it as a video game. If this were a video game and I was trying to get my character from this level to the next level, what are the problems I had to solve and how would I go about doing that? And if you think about it that way, it pulls you out of well, which line of code am I going to add? Which package am I going to import? Which set of software am I going to use? More towards what do I have to do to get the problem solved? What do I have to do to make my audience the hero in their story? Yeah, because you hear a lot of, well, at least I do with my mentees. I hear a lot of, um, you know, the first question they ask is, which algorithm should I use? Which data set should I use? And I'm like, uh, how about you ask yourself, which problem do you find interesting that you can go solve? Thank you. And then, yeah. 
Perfect. <laughs> and go, flip, flip it on its head because that's the most challenging aspect, I think, of data science. It's not necessarily the, the Are you familiar stuff. with a gentleman by the name of Leo Bryman, famous researcher from California who helped develop CART and Random Forest? One of his theories that came out around the year 2000, maybe 1999, was called, or the phrase that he popularized, was the multiplicity of good models. And cutting to the chase, what it says is, if you do all your data definition and your problem definition and your feature engineering correctly, all kinds of algorithms can solve the problem. Not every algorithm can solve every problem, but lots of algorithms can solve the problem if you set the problem up correctly and do your feature engineering correctly. That's where you start. And so lots of algorithms will then solve the problem. Now, there are exceptions to that if you've got like a P greater than N problem. In other words, you've got more variables than you have records. You're pretty much stuck with support vector machine. If you're going to try and find the kittens in the YouTube video, I like kittens, by the way. Um, I think that you're in a situation where you're going to have to use some type of deep learning. But for lots of other more common business problems, all kinds of tools will do it. And so Brian had raised this idea that there's a multiplicity of good models. There are many good algorithms you can use to solve the problem. Get the other stuff fixed first, then pick the algorithm. Absolutely love it. Yeah, because feature engineering is really, you know, being able to build out the complexity from that real world data generating process. Like that raw data is not going to do you much good at all. Uh, you need to use your ingenuity to build out features, capture that complexity in the form of new features so that you're setting up the, the data set for success. Absolutely agree with you. Can you share some tips or words of encouragement for our listeners who've got like a couple of decades, maybe 10 or 20 years of non-data related experience under their belt, and they're now trying to break into data science. Uh, you know, what challenges do you foresee them facing and how can they overcome these challenges? Sure. Uh, one thing to do is make sure that you're doing it for the right reason. And, and, and I don't mean to be all sort of philosophical here, but I think it's great if you want to join the field. Again, my background was, you know, I tease with people, but the first half of my career, everyone told me I couldn't do this because I didn't have a PhD in statistics. And the second half of my career, everyone told me I can't do this because I don't have a PhD in computer science. And yet, you know, I've been doing this since the Reagan administration. So, so somehow it, it, it seems to be working out okay. It's more about how are you going to get into the field? And part of the challenge you're going to run into is the fact that 15 years ago, our field changed a lot because we brought in so many software developers into the field, which I think is fantastic. They're amazing people. They have skills that I do not have, and I wish I did. And we brought all those people into the field, which is fantastic. Unfortunately, what happened as a side effect of that is everybody became convinced that you have to be a pure developer to be able to make a contribution in the field. So first of all, you need to be aware that there's a mindset among lots of the people who hire for entry-level folks that you really have to have developer skills. Be aware on why you're entering the field, because if you're not willing to put in that work to get some of those fundamental software developing skills, it's going to be very hard to convince folks that you're a good fit for the position. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying I approve of it. I'm saying that ju that just is the reality. But if this is something you love, and you want to be in it because you don't think you'd be interested in anything else, that needs to be your why. That needs to be your motivation to carry you through what you need to learn because there is a fair amount to learn. If you're jumping into it because your third cousin twice removed told you that it pays a lot of money, it's going to be hard to keep the motivation and you're likely to get bored and frustrated and leave the field. So maybe this isn't a great fit for you. So 
make sure that your why, whatever your why is, is enough to fuel you to get you through the difficult patch to get you to where you want to be. But look, I am not a genius. God knows I wish I was. I hope that I'm at least average IQ, maybe. And um, what has propelled me through this is the focus on meeting people's needs, problem solving, and figuring out the technology to get through this. If I can do this, you can do this. If I can get through this, you can get through this. I think those would be my words of encouragement. Find your why, make sure it's the right why, and use that to propel you through the more technical stuff. Are you a fan of Simon Sinek? I don't know Simon Sinek. Oh, man. Well, he wrote that book, uh, Start With Why. I think you'd really, really... Excellent. I didn't... I had never made the connection. Thank you. So a couple of follow-up questions based on what we just talked about. Uh, So what advice or insight can you share with people who are breaking into the field and they look at these job postings and some of them want the abilities of an entire team wrapped up into one person? Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, most of them do. And they end up feeling dejected or discouraged from applying. Um, What words of encouragement do you have uh, for them? There is a huge challenge in that because it's a relatively young field, people are terrified of making a mistake. So they try and create a job description that is what I will call boss proof, meaning that their boss for their boss's boss isn't going to come in and say, oh, well, I read an article in Forbes that says, you know, you need to be able to understand convolutional neural networks to be able to take the job. And the person's like, okay, fine. They'll put CNN in the job description. And they pass it on to the poor HR person. Now, most human resources folks are experts in human resources, right? That's really experts in data science. So somebody shoves a poorly written, overly detailed job description to them and says, go find these people. And there's so many people applying for so many jobs, the only choice the human resource person has is to use the applicant tracking system to look for keywords, throw a bunch of keywords in there that try to match what the hiring manager is looking for. And so you end up with job descriptions that look like an entire computer science department. So what I would suggest is one, realize very few people have all those requirements. I would say if you have more than half and it's something you're interested in, send in an application, see what happens. That's the first thing. Don't rule yourself out. Second of all, what I found to be really helpful, especially on LinkedIn, is take your 10 favorite reasonable jobs that you would like to have and you think you might be a possible fit for and dump out what the keywords are from those descriptions. Then figure out which ones showed up in the most job descriptions of jobs you like. Don't worry about location, but do worry about comparative level. Are you entry level, mid-level, senior level? Then start going down the list and figure out what do I have and what do I not have? If it's an important bullet point in nine out of the 10 jobs that you want to apply for and you don't have it, that's a problem. So that might be how you prioritize what you're going to study, what you're going to do some experimental projects are, what you're going to you know visit a local AI or machine learning club to discuss those type of things. What are more articles I can read on that? Then go down the list. But if you have more than half, try it out. I I will tell you that it is a scary world out there. In some cases, um, I was turned down for a job once not uh, too terribly long ago where they said, "Well, well, well, how much work have you done with autonomous vehicles? I was like, well, I work in financial services. I've never worked with autonomous vehicles. Mm, I don't know. That might be a problem. You're going to run into that. The trick is to apply to enough places and to work on your skill set so that the skill set you have and what you love to do matches what the job is. And you're going to run into some cases where you really want to be working on identifying the kittens in YouTube videos. The hiring manager wants you to have something completely different. That's going to happen. 
but you keep trying. The job search process is horrible. I don't have anything positive to say about it. I think what people misunderstand is they think they're having a hard time and everyone else is finding this easy. I don't know if anybody likes the job search process. It's definitely very, very strenuous. Um, but you know, if you, if you take your approach to it and gamify it, treat it like a game, and just take every rejection and every setback as a learning opportunity, just change your mindset about it and turn it into a positive, right? And really if like you're that. in a larger organization, you're usually much better off trying to make a lateral move to a job that looks more like what you want in the organization you're already in, as opposed to making a leap to a different organization if you haven't filled up any experience yet. And I really like that advice about just taking inventory of you know 10 different job postings yep. and highlighting the terms between them that are common. And now you know what it is that you need to, to study for. That's actually yeah. advice that I'd given to one of my mentees just yesterday. During Fantastic. The, you've got a ton of experience in finance and fintech. Um, do you have any suggestions for finance or fintech data science projects that an aspiring data scientist could tackle? There are a couple of data sets out there on Kaggle regarding credit scoring. That's always a good one. Fraud detection is a really big one. Um, what I would suggest you stay away from is the stuff that starts to dig into advanced economics or time series prediction of stock prices because it's just really, really hard and there tends not to be the level of data you need to come up with a great prediction as opposed to credit scoring, fraud detection, um, credit profiling, those types of projects would be closer to FinTech. Chatbots are ridiculously popular. It's not a field that particularly lights my fire, but um, there's a lot of opportunity for it in fintech. So that would be another good one. And do you have like any uh, good case studies that somebody who's into f uh, fintech or finance uh, should check out? The Kaggle credit scoring is a good one. The Kaggle um, Aetna challenge for good drivers, that's another good one. Those would be two to start. I don't know of a ton out there, but let me give you a good example from FinTech that's really applicable to a lot of different fields. And that has to do with credit scoring. For example, if you look at the total amount of debt that somebody has, total revolving debts, all your credit card type stuff, that actually isn't terribly predictive. If you look at the total credit lines that somebody has, so if you add up the total credit limit on all their revolving credit, that doesn't tend to be too predictive either, or much less than I would have imagined it would be. But if you take the ratio of how much they owe to how much they could owe if they wanted to, that's hugely predictive. Now, here's the challenge. If you just throw those numbers into most traditional statistics packages, it's going to say, nope, there isn't a real high correlation on either one of these. The odds of it calculating the ratio on its own is horrible. They do not do a good job at this. So that's an example of if you follow just purely classical statistics and threw those two inputs out, because each one by itself isn't terribly predictive, and didn't try a ratio, you'd be out of luck and you would have missed one of the most important predictors of overall credit performance. So that's why I say the problem solving, which of these things are related? What might I try? What are some different combinations? I throw out about 80% of everything I try because I have learned over the years that trying to outguess the data is usually a fool's errand. It is better to think through the data, try a bunch of different stuff, see what makes sense, see what holds up, see what validates and use that. Rather trying to massage your own ego and think, oh, well, I'm so smart. I can figure this out without testing. That, that, that tends not to work. Let the data lead you. Feature engineering to the rescue, right? Just absolutely <laughs> develop good features. It's it's important. So having developed so many, you know, a hundred predictive models, right? And this is something that I think a lot of people who are breaking into the field or maybe brand new to the field don't have a lot of experience with. And that's 
the things that we need to do after a, a model has been deployed and put into production. So what are some things that we need to be cognizant of and, and monitor and track once a model is deployed, both from the data scientist perspective and the business perspective? Plan for obsolescence is, is my biggest lesson there. Um, so when you think about model risk management, all models deteriorate over time. The model that looks fantastic today may look horrible six months from now. Rather than trying and just sitting in fear that the model's going to deteriorate, plan for it. How often are you going to check the model? Are you keeping, in essence, a control group of records you don't score? Are you using a population stability report to see if the world has changed? Is the performance, you know it's going to deteriorate at some point. So how often are you checking and what's your plan to replace the old model with a new model? What is your champion challenger test plan to be able to say, okay, I came up with two new models that might be able to replace the old model that's starting to fail. How are you going to test all three together and compare scores? How are you going to replace it? Have you already worked with the technology group on when it's going to be replaced? Do you have the resources for that? That all needs to be baked into the plan. Don't wait for disaster to happen. Know that you're going to have model drift almost no matter what you do. Rather than try and fight gravity, say, hey, okay, so I'm just going to plan for that. And here's my schedule and here's how I'm going to address it. And here's how I'm going to test for it. And this is what I'm going to do. Models are not one and done. And planning for that up front also, you're going to have much less problem with people saying, see, I told you that this stuff doesn't work. Well, it works for a period of time, and the process is always updating what I like to call non-stoptimization. In other words, you're always going to optimize. You're always going to improve. You're always going to try and be better. But you know that models are going to deteriorate, so here's how I'm going to replace them when they do. It's also a very good approach to have in your life as well. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So what advice do you have for data scientists who have, who feel like they don't need to learn anymore? They don't need to grow anymore. They don't need to improve anymore, uh, that they've already learned everything they need to learn to be successful. What would you have to say to data scientists that's in that mindset? I would not tell that person anything because if they have that mindset, they're certainly not going to listen to me. I have run into those people in my life and me trying to explain to them all the reasons why that isn't true is usually a waste of breath and it's not a useful exercise. Uh, one thing that they may want to think about is pretend they were in the industry 20 years ago. What are the skills they would have used and would you still use them today? Well, no, because this, this, and this, and I've got this new Okay, great. What makes you think that that isn't going to happen again 10 years from now? There, there is no point in time where you can stick a pin in a bullet board and say, okay, progress stopped here. Nothing has improved in my field since then. The rate of acceleration is increasing geometrically in this field. So if you don't like constantly learning, this is really a bad field to go into. Yeah, learning never, ever, ever stops as a data scientist. That's why I absolutely love this field. I used to be an actuary. I used to be a biostatistician. And Oh, geez, that's heavy duty, my friend. But I didn't feel like I was continuously learning, continuously growing. Yeah. It just wasn't, wasn't a challenge, right? It's almost like, okay, cool. I passed a bunch of exams and... Yeah. Is, is that all there is? Like, you know yep. what I mean? Uh, and yep. that's the one thing I love about data science is that you have to, you have to always learn. Well, what's the old joke about a PhD? You learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. You can't <laughs> really do that in this field um, because everything changes. I, I would say that the industry has changed more in the past seven years than it had in the 27 years prior to that, at least from my, my career experience.
Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. Last question here before you jump into a right lightning round. Okay. Um, What's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? There is a real benefit to taking your ego out of the equation and being humble and being willing to continually learn and to learn that you need to help people. And that's what it's all about. If this was impossibly hard, I could not do this for a living. I will tell you a personal story that seems to resonate with a lot of people. When my son was itty bitty, he was about three years old. My wife at the time kidnapped him. I was living in Hawaii. And she took my son back to Baltimore and said, um, you know, if you want to see your son, you're going to have to come back to Baltimore. And I was going to have to give up my career to be able to do that. And I was like, oh, what is going on? This is horrible. Oh. So she says, I'm going to put our son on the phone. And by the way, I told him that the reason you can't be home right now is because you're packing his toys. I was like, why did you tell him that? And, uh, here he is. He gets on the phone. And this tiny little voice on the other end of the phone from 6,000 miles away says, Daddy, are you done packing my toys yet? I was just crushed. And I was like, what am I going to do? So I had to give up my entire career, pack up the house, move back to Baltimore. And all of the financial services companies that I would have worked with back in the Baltimore area had moved to Delaware because they changed the tax laws. I had to work as a temporary secretary for several months trying to figure out what I was going to do. And then I was like, I wonder, I wonder if anyone would be interested in this artificial intelligence stuff. Because huh? it helped me a lot. So maybe I could help other people with that. So I had to recover from all those obstacles and become hopefully a leader in the field of artificial intelligence. If I can come back from that, you guys can be successful too. That that hits me because like my son was just born a week ago today. Oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So man, that, that really, hopefully my wife will never do that to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he's fine. I'm fine. His mom's yeah. fine. Everybody's yeah. fine. It has a happy ending, but it didn't yeah. seem very happy at the time. So let's jump into our lightning round. Okay. T. Scott Clendaniel. What does the T stand for? Timothy. Timothy. All right. So what, what are the two five letter words that really grind your gears and why? Model versus magic and the fact that people don't know the difference. So what is a academic topic or just a, a, a area of research or interest outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend more time researching on? Graphics. Because the idea of using a picture to communicate an idea does wonders to get further in your career and to help people on the other side. So what is your favorite question to ask during an interview? What is holding you back from hiring me? Oh, I'm sorry. You meant this kind of interview. Um, my favorite <laughs> I don't know. Um, I have no idea, but at least I'm honest enough to admit it. No, that's, that's a good question. I like that. What is holding you back from hiring me? Uh, or what concerns do you have that I might be able to address? Because what it does is it forces the person on the other end of the line to say, oh, okay. And if they say none, that's good to know. If they say something that I can address, I can address it. And if it's something I can't address, it's probably not a good idea to go forward. Uh, it's very, very interesting that you say that because uh, that is also one question I ask in my interviews. It's pretty much the Excellent. same. 
the more time I'm spending with you, the more and more I realizing how similar we are. It's actually, I'm, I'm looking at myself in the next uh, 10 years right here. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, like it, it does, it's a great question because it allows you to get inside their head to see what gaps and concerns they have. Absolutely. You then you could then flip it and be like, all right, well, actually we didn't talk about this thing and here's what experience I have with that. So what's the weirdest question that you've been asked in an interview? I'm going to have to go with the reinforcement learning for autonomous vehicles um, in that the same person had uh, used one of those animation things you can use with one of those Go cameras in the interview and put first a pirate hat on his head and then a cat on his head and said, doesn't this look cool? And then asked me about reinforcement learning. I was like, I, I don't think this is going to turn out well. <laughs> so what's the number one book you'd recommend our audience to read and your most impactful takeaway from it? In Search of Excellence, old book um, from the 80s, had a huge impact on me. A bunch of excellent McKinsey uh, consultants went on a search of the top performing corporations in America from coming up on 40 years ago and found out that what made them successful is very different from what most people think, including the other members of the consulting firm before they started the study. Interesting. And what would you say was your most impactful takeaway from, from that book? Just how important customer obsession is and that it is not silliness and it's not being a jolly do-gooder. It is knowing your customer and how to help them solve what's causing them pain and different applications of that. Um, uh, another one that came out of that was MBWA management by walking around. Don't just listen to the executives who are in the next level down. You need to be able to get on the front lines uh, and visit and listen to customer interactions or you don't understand what your business is really doing. Yeah, I'll definitely add those to the show notes. So if we could somehow get a magic telephone that allowed us to contact 20-year-old T. Scott, what would you tell him? He wouldn't listen to a thing I said, so probably not much. <laughs> I, <laughs> humility is a lesson uh, that I wish I had learned a lot earlier. Uh, once upon a time, I thought I was a smart person until I started working with like spooky smart people. And then I was like, wow, I better find a better way to differentiate myself because I'm not nearly as bright as I thought I was. So what is the best advice you have ever received? Treat others the way they wish to be treated, not the way you wish to be treated, which is the golden rule. So what do they call it? The platinum rule. Mm -hmm. um, you really need to listen to people and people's what it's all about, whether no matter what you study, no matter what makes you happy, if you can't learn to help solve other people's problems, you're in for a long, hard road. What motivates you? What motivates me is the desire to help. Lots of people can be made happy from lots of different things. If you grow up in one culture, one type of music might make you happy. But if you grow up in another type of culture, another type of music might have made you happy. So many different things can make people happy. If you learn to become happy in the journey of helping others, then you can be happy and they can be happy at the same time. You don't sacrifice one for the other. Speaking of music, what song do you have on repeat right now? Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so uh, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Uh, please follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm kind of maxed out on connections, but um, I am very active in LinkedIn. I um, am constantly on there trying to share articles, tutorials, free resources. I have really made an effort to um, 
try and spread good tools to the data science community. And I hope to continue to do that. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with me today. You're very welcome. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, being here. All right. Have a great week.